Hey guys, welcome to Rebuilding the Beast. I'm your host, NBA champ Festus Azili, and on this podcast, we're going to be sharing a lot of inspiring stories of people just like you who have shown that adversity is not the end. You can be successful, you can be happy again, you can have what you want from life and thrive after great adversities. I hope you can take the tips and lessons from these stories and apply it to your life as well. Welcome to Rebuilding the Beast. Guys, today's episode is, oh my gosh, my brain is blown because today we have author, wife, mama, former foster youth, now foster mama, Tori Hope Peterson. Her story of starting in the foster care system at three years old, going through 10 different homes when she was a teenager, she shares the story of what that, that system looks like, what her journey looked like. Becoming Mrs. Universe, what that looked like, being a track champion. Now she's written a memoir, Fostered, one woman's powerful story of finding faith and family through foster care. Tori Hope Peterson is an inspiring, incredible human. I can't wait for you guys to hear this podcast. Here you go. Without further ado, Rebuilding Tori Hope Peterson. Tori, welcome to Rebuilding the Beast. Thank you so much for being willing to be on here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored um, and it's really cool to be on here with an NBA champ. My husband was really excited when I told him. (laughs) Okay, so you say that about me, but we're going to get into your story because you're also a champion as well. So this is champ talk right now. All right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, I, I saw your video on social media and there's a moving video of you where you hold up signs with parts of your story. And so much to talk about when it comes to you. So I'd like to start at the beginning. At the age of three years old, you entered the foster care system. Can you tell us why you were placed in foster care? Yeah. You know, when you're like three years old, you don't really like know why. And there was just these men, they busted through our door one morning and grabbed all these bags down from cabinets and the wardrobe. And there was this nice lady who took me, you know, to the backyard and she said, we're going to go somewhere for a while. And so, you know, I didn't really understand like what was happening then. But as I got older, you know, I understood that it was a drug bust that my mom was selling and involved in um, just things that were illegal. Um, but I was actually, you know, I lived in the foster care system. It was for it. You know, when when I was in the system that first time, it felt like a long time because I wanted to be back with my mom. But I think it was just a short time, like, you know, in in the grand scheme of things, like maybe six months. And then I was actually reunited with my foster mom or with my biological mom. And I exited the foster care system. Mm. At the age of nine, you found out that you were conceived out of abuse which must have been hard to wrap your head around, especially at a young age. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. My mom, um, you know, I have, I don't know how I put two and two together, but like my mom never wanted to talk about my dad. I would ask, you know, you're like a little girl and you, everyone else has a dad. And so I just kept asking questions like, tell me something about him. And she would not say like anything. And then there were times where she would kind of, I don't know, just get upset and be like, you're a spitting image of your dad. And I'd be like, 
what does that mean? Like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And then I started to, you know, put two and two together. I think I heard a story on YouTube of, you know, that happening to another woman. And I just said, mom, like, did this happen to you? And she just started weeping. And she's like, I don't want you to know that. I didn't want you to think that defined you. Like, you know, that's not who you are. And I think because my mom growing up, she always told me like, you're beautiful. I love you. She always spoke a lot of, um, she spoke a lot of harsh things over me in her times of mania because she is diagnosed with mental illness. But in her times of health, she spoke a lot of encouraging things to me. And I think I really did absorb those. And then so when, when she told me that that's how I was conceived and, you know, the first thing that she said as she's crying, like she's not talking about her pain. She's not worried about like the pain that she went through. She's literally telling me like, this is who you are not. And this is who you are. Like that was the first thing she said to me. And I think that, um, I think that that really did speak to me, even though, um, you know, I had, I I guess, great heartbreak for my mom. Mm -hmm. I would also say like, with my reflect, like looking at my reflection of myself, I knew that like, that didn't define me. I love it. I love it. Um, You wrote a book called Fostered. Congratulations, first of all. Uh, Thank you. In an excerpt, you write about the fact that your biological mom, when she found out that she was pregnant with you, also found out that she was positive for HIV. She was on medication then, so you didn't contact that in the womb, right? So when I was born, you know, they. this is a spoiler alert for the book. For anyone who doesn't want that, um, you can just pause or fast forward, but... <laughs> when I was born, um, they, they were expecting me to have it and I didn't. And so they tested my mom again and it was actually a false positive. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And so there was doctors that told her, you know, that it might be best to abort this baby, not just because of how the baby was conceived, but also because, um, she had that positive test. And she was like, no, like, I just don't want to do that. Like she thought it would be traumatizing. And um, she said that she saw me on the ultrasound and she just knew, like, she was like, I, I love her. Like, I know that that's my baby. You know, what's in my brain, I, all I can think about when I hear your story is like the different barriers to you even being here today. You're here for a reason. Like, I, I, I will go back to what I said initially that, um, God gave you your mountains so you can show others it can be moved. That is a real statement that I really live by. And I'm hearing your story. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, dude, there's so many things. I, and I'm just so grateful for you being here. So that's that's what I'm just overcoming <laughs> that right now as we're talking. Um, so you entered the foster care system again for the second time at the age of 12. You lived in more than 10 foster homes, 10 different foster homes. Um, can you tell us a bit about the foster care experience? Are there core memories, good, bad, yeah. ones that stick out to you while being in the system? Yeah, it was like so hard. You know, like people always talk about when I was a kid, you know, you like want to be a grown up. You're like, I just want to, I just want to be a grown up. And people were like, oh, when you're a grown up, everything's just going to get harder. 
like being a grown up has been so much better than being in the system just because it was so hard. So, you know, I, I would move from home to home and you just learn to adjust to each family. You're trying to be accepted. You're trying to fit. And, you know, always in the back of your mind, I was always hoping like for adoption, always hoping for something permanent, even though I did have my biological mom, you know, I never grew up with a dad and the relationship with my biological mom, it was always like very, very rocky, very hard. And then, so just to continue to be moved again and again and again, sometimes it was my fault. Sometimes I didn't follow the rules that the foster parents had in place or the caseworkers had in place. And so I'd have to be moved, but just to continue like to be moved for no one to fight for me, like to actually want me, you know, like my own biological children, like I, you know, when you have your, your biological children, you like fight for them, like you, like to the death. And I think I just always, like, I wanted that. And then it, when it felt like, okay, maybe this is the home, like maybe I'm going to get that. It was like, okay, now you're going to move. And so it was just like, you know, some people, I think like when they date, they're like, oh, like I feel disposable. Like if they're like serial daters or something, but I think in, when you're a foster kid, like you actually are disposable. Like the people who are supposed to love you can literally throw you out at any given point. And so just to constantly like have that, that feeling of kind of like trash was, was a huge part of how I kind of looked at myself. And so honestly, I started to kind of be really mean. Like I started to be a jerk in high school. I would say I might've been a little bit of a bully. I was so angry, took it out on my peers. Um, and then I was going to church. I was in like my last foster home and I, my foster mom, she was taking me to church. And it was then that, you know, I started to hear this message that I had heard tidbits of like my whole life, God was totally like in my life before this time, like trying to reach me. I see it now. And then when I was at church, um, just like God just really captivated my heart Mm -hmm. by looking at other people who were just very loving and very kind and being like, this is what the gospel is. Like the gospel, you know, it saves us and it, it's because Jesus like loved us so much. And there are these people that reflected that love to me. And I felt like that was like for the first time almost in the system, like where this unconditional love was reflected to me by people in the church. And it was so healing. And I was like, I want that love. Like, I don't want to be mean to people. I don't want to be a bully. Like we can have, like, we can have empathy for people, hurt people, hurt people, but heal people help heal people. And I really wanted, I wanted to have a part in the healing. And so, but I knew I couldn't do that unless I was healed. And I knew that the only thing that could do that was the love of God. So I used to date somebody um, who was in the foster system. And so um, a beautiful girl, and she was incredible. And hearing her stories broke my heart back in the day because, um, just the idea of rejection 
And so what you were saying, and maybe you could t- touch more on it about the rules of mm. being in the foster home, because um, we talked about, you know, when you have your own kid, like you fight to the death of them. But like your kids drive you crazy anyway. Right. Like I, you're a mom. So you understand how that goes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yep. <laughs> like there's just typical teenage things that kids do that parents are like, oh, my gosh, I got to go home to this kid. But then when you're a foster kid, it's like you can't be normal. Because then it's like something. Yes. Dude, that's exactly how it was. Like th- the rules that I broke, it was like normal teenage stuff. So right now, so in, in 2014, which is when I emancipated from the foster care system, there was an act that passed. It's called the Normalcy Act. Mm-hmm. And it says that youth who live in like out of home care or foster care, they get to have normal experiences. But when I was in the foster care system, that act had not passed. And so like one of the, one of the reasons I got kicked out was because I was 17 and I didn't want to ride the bus to school. And I had to, like, if I wanted to ride with friends, well, I could, no, I couldn't ride with friends. Anyone who was under 18, I couldn't ride with. Um, But if I wanted to ride with anybody else, they had to have fingerprints, background check, um, and proof of license and insurance to my caseworkers, which like everyone thought was super weird and creepy. So I never asked them. And I had a friend, I was living in this neighborhood and in my foster home. And I had a friend who, you know, she'd drive by and she'd come pick me up. I didn't want to ride the bus. I was like, I'm too old to ride the bus. I'm too cool. And right now, like I see that that's just like such a silly thing, but when you're 17, it's such a big deal. And so, you know, I, I, they, my, my foster parents usually went to work in the morning, but there was one morning they, they ended up like not going to work. Um, I think they just took like a vacation day, but they saw that I, I didn't know, like, I thought they were, they had already left, but they were in their room sleeping and, um, they were very, you know, they're very upset that I wasn't riding the bus to school this whole time. And so they kicked me out. And so that's, that's Uh the crazy thing is it's just like, and there are so many, you know, scenarios like that, where if it was a biological child, like it wouldn't have mattered, but because I was in foster care. You talked about times when you felt like uh, this could be it. Because, you know, you felt love that maybe other times with other kids where you're comfortable in the home. Um, are there any good memories of times in homes um, while you were a foster kid? Yeah, you know, I think my my last foster mom, she had a really big influence on my life. Um, she was just like, so kind, so sacrificial, you know, when you're in the system, you know, that your parents are getting paid, you know, that there's always that stipend and you always hear parents say it's not enough. She just never talked about the money. I ran track in high school and it was my, in between my junior and senior year that, um, I had my coach who started, he just started to speak life into me. And he was like, I think you can go onto the state track meet. I think you can get a scholarship to college. And I never really heard anything like this tangible of a goal before. And so that really, um, that left a mark with me. And I started to train with him more consistently. And before that, I started doing that in my 11th foster home. And they were like, you're not going to go to state. Like, 
this, like you never even been to state individually. Like he's just, he's just trying to get your hopes up. And then when I went to, you know, this last foster home, she just wanted to do anything like to, I don't think it mattered to her if I was going to win state or not. It didn't matter to her if I was a success story. She just wanted to pour into me and she wanted me to have like healthy, I guess, healthy things to do. And so, you know, she would buy me the track shoes that I needed. And I was all high maintenance about the food that I ate because I was like, I really, I want to be a healthy eater so that I can win. And she was not healthy. Like she, she bought like Cheetos and like, and I was like, I can't eat Cheetos. And like that, looking back, like that was so high maintenance, but she, she was like, I'm going to like, do what you think you need to be successful. And so I guess just that, that kind of love again, is very sacrificial, um, very much not about her. It had a very big impact on me. And I was like, I want to, I want to be like that. You know, it's a tough thing. Even when I hear it, I'm trying not to input my own personal thing in there, but you know, the idea of mom, right, is I guess there is a big difference between mom and foster mom, because once you put the foster in there, it's like that's high maintenance. But as a kid, like you're trying to do the best. And so your mom's job is supposed to be to support you. So, um, yeah, just an interesting thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true that you're so right. But I think that you know, because I always felt like such a burden, like, because I was like this extra, you know, in everyone's home, like, it was always felt like, never felt like anyone was like, you're meant to be here. Like, you're one of us. It was always like, I was this extra. And me and my husband has have fostered and um, we have people, we've had um, birth moms come and live with us who are trying to get their kids out of foster care. Right now, we have a young woman who was adopted from Latvia um, who's staying with us right now. I'm kind of like mentoring her. Um, we have my sister who's living with us. We always have different people living with us. And it's just so important to us that they feel like they are one of us. Like they're not this extra because they aren't biologically ours. And so when we take family pictures, uh, whoever's living in our house is in the family picture. And, I I mean, those are just like the little things that I just always felt, I guess, left out of. And like I wasn't a part, like I didn't belong anywhere. And just to clarify, it's when you took family pictures and when you were living in those homes, you did not get in the family pictures? So I remember there was one family, we did Christmas pictures and they did let me in the pictures. But then like, you know, they did the ones where I was like out. So it was like, okay, now you go sit to the side and you watch us like the real kids, the real kids take pictures. And that was always like, again, just a reminder that like you didn't belong anywhere. You weren't actually like, you know, you didn't actually belong. I started um, a nonprofit called the beloved initiative. And one of our very first things like that we did was we went from town to town and we offered foster families free family photos because we understand like it is an investment, right? Like family pictures can be expensive and foster, like some foster parents, depending on where they're living, they're not being paid a lot. And so we offered free family photos and, um, you know, on the email we wrote, we wrote, do not ask 
for any child to be excluded from the pictures. And I, I knew it was hard for some foster parents, but we were really proud um, of just how many families we were able to photograph, how many kids um, we were able to hopefully make feel like, you know, they belonged in this family. That's amazing. When you were 18, though, you became homeless because correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the rules of the foster system, right? That, so now again, like so much has improved, which is like, I, I, I was kind of on like the end of the system. Like the system is still sad and bad in a lot of ways, but I was definitely on the end of like it being like the worst, <laughs> I think after I emancipated like two years after I emancipated um, so now I work in my town and I work, um, in foster care ministry all over, but, um, working in my town now, I know that they have like a program where, you know, the kids get a stipend when they turn 18, they help them get apartments, like they help them buy a car. Like I didn't have any of that. Um, so when I turned 18, I actually did choose to emancipate. I had an option to stay in, but if I stayed in, I still had all the rules of like, you know, again, these just like regular rules of like, you can't go to a friend's house. You can't like go to the school bonfire. You can't go to football games. And I was just like, I'm just done. And so I chose to emancipate when I turned 18 and I was bouncing. I mean, I was like, I didn't have a home, but I was bouncing around from home to home um, of people in the church. And then um, probably like after a month of bouncing around, my track coach was like, your practices are, are going amazing. Like your times are better than ever, but if you can't get a consistent place to like sleep, like I was sleeping on like people's kitchen floors at one point. And there was like one point I had to go buy a space heater from Walmart. Cause like this person's house was so cold because they couldn't afford their heat bill. And like, just like not good situations. And my track coach was like, I would let you come live, live with me, but because of legalities, like with the school, I'm, I'm worried. And I totally understood that. So, but he was like, you have to find somewhere safe and somewhere warm to sleep. Like you can't keep doing this. And so um, I had someone from my church who I had lived with for a short time. She actually was kind of, um, she was really a safe house while I was living with my biological mom before I went into the system the second time. And we, me and my sister, we went into the system. It was like three days before Christmas or two days before Christmas. And um, she didn't want us to go into the system, like into a new home where we didn't have Christmas presents and stuff. So she actually took us in for a little bit and she made sure that we had like, we had more Christmas presents than like her kids combined. So she, and I, I'd always stayed close to her. She'd always been a mentor to me. Um, but my biological mom had kind of, she knew how close she was, how close me and her were. And I think that made my biological mom jealous, like understandably, and so she was kind of scared of letting me in because of the threats that my mom had made to her. But then she realized like, okay, this is kind of like, this is very serious. Like she needs a place, especially as things with track are progressing. And so she let me in and that's where I lived um, until my track season was over. And then my track coach was like, you know, we want you, our family wants you to be a part of our family and our home is your home. 
And so when state was over, um, I moved in with him and he's been my dad ever since he walked me down the aisle at my wedding. He's a grand grandparent to my kids. Like he's who took me back and every, every Christmas break, every Thanksgiving, when I was in college, you know, there's a lot of foster kids who they don't have a place to go when they're in college. Like they go do Christmas at a nonprofit who will like get them Christmas presents, but doesn't, they don't know them, you know? And so I, I've just been so blessed by his family, just welcoming me in and really my, and my family, they're my family now. I'm trying my best not to be emotional. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So I remember stories. I remember horror stories actually that my ex would tell me about living in different homes and especially being a woman. I can't imagine. I actually, even hearing you talk about going from home to home, I remember you saying that you, you slept somewhere where there was mold and you had to go to the hospital because mm-hmm. you couldn't breathe. Can you tell me some of those horror stories? And it's not to harp, but I understand that trauma. Like, I don't want to bring it back up. But no. Just having people understand what it means to, to go from home to home and to live in this foster care system. You know, it's so interesting to me. Like, when you're a foster parent, you have all of these... I don't know, criteria that you have to meet or that you're supposed to meet. And then like moving from home to home. And, you know, I was, I lived with one lady one time and she was like the sweetest lady. She was so sweet, but she had like 30 dogs in her house, like 30. And so, you know, you can't keep up with the feces and the urine. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't keep up with the mess that 30 dogs make. Um, and she lived on like a barn. So when the caseworkers would come, she would just like put them in the barn, but still like, and so, you know, I think the horror stories of living in the foster care system, like that is the, like the smallest example, but you know, in my first home, me and my sister were placed together and um, there was abuse that happened in the home. And I reported it and I was deemed a liar and we were separated. And I remember I was standing at the door with my sister because they told us we had to leave because I had lied. And I was sitting at the door with my sister and I was like, okay, let's go. And they're like, oh no, your sister's staying here. Like you're leaving. And that was just like, oh, that was so crushing. Cause I was like, oh, if I would have stayed quiet, like I, you know, I reported the abuse was so that someone would be safe. But then like by reporting it, I made my sister like the most unsafe. And so it was just really crushing. And then just to see like how abuse is brushed under the rug multiple times in the system um, to keep foster homes so that you don't have to move kids so that your job doesn't have to be made harder. The caseworker's job doesn't have to be made harder. Um, That was the hardest part. And then, you know, when abuse did happen, then you just stay quiet because it's like, well, no one's going to believe me. I'm going to be called a liar. And then I'm going to be called unplaceable. And then like, I would, I went to a group home after that. And it's like, I don't want to go to another group home. Like I want to live in this home. I want to stay at my school. I want to keep running track. And so there's always this tension, you know, of like staying quiet or reporting and um, just kind of putting your head down. And I always just kind of put my head down and like, for the most part, really did what I was supposed to do other than ride the bus to school. (laughs) Wow. 
you were able to reconnect with your sister after you were separated in foster care. That's so heartwarming to see, um, especially seeing it on social media, her spending the summer with you. You now have time to rebuild your sister bond or did that bond just never leave? You know, okay, that is what's so weird, right? Like that you, like we were separated for, gosh, like we were separated basically for 12 years. And then she comes and so she moved in with us and she's going to stay with us until she graduates high school. Um, and if she needs a home after high school, then she can stay with us. But um, she has two more years of high school. She's um, going to be a junior. And it's so crazy. Like we just reconnect. And when we were separated, you know, she was a toddler. And so it's like, how do you just reconnect with this person? Like there's, it doesn't feel like there's any pressure of like, I have to try and like, prove to her who I am or like it's like she just knows who I am and but there it feels like there should sometimes I'm like should I be like doing something differently like why is this so natural but I really do think that's the beauty of you know family oh my gosh okay that's amazing um do you have any contact with your biological mother I let me tell you oh my I'll tell you this beautiful story I so I have had contact with my biological mother since I entered the foster care system and then when I came to know Christ, it, the, the idea of forgiveness, um, it really, I think it really reconnected us because I, I wanted to forgive my mom and Christ had, has forgiven me and I wanted her to know Christ and, you know, how people come to know Christ. Sometimes it's like in these cool evangelical ways where like they hear a preacher, someone reads something to them in the Bible. But a lot of times like people come to know Christ because the people around them um, are reflecting him. And they're like, why are you being so nice? Like, why are you being so kind? Why are you so loving? And it's like, well, because Jesus is in me. And so there is this hope, you know, that my mom can heal and really understand who God is and who he says she is. And so I try my best. I'm not very good at it. I don't think that I try my best to be loving and kind and to show up and have a relationship with her. Sometimes I have to drop back because of her mental illness. But just the other day, she came over. And um, so now, because we just moved to Ohio, so my sister, we were living in Minnesota, just moved to Ohio like a month ago. So my sister could live with us because she didn't want to move schools. And I didn't want to take her out because she's like a 4.0 student. She's mm -hmm. doing really good. And so we moved here. So now we're much closer to my mom. And she came over and she brought me four pieces of luggage. And I was like, what are these for? And she's like, I wanted to donate them to foster kids. <sighs> and I just, I thought that was like, wow, God, like that is... I just felt like that was the epitome of like redemption because, you know, you're like your kids go into the system and there's so much heartbreak, you know, that my mom has experienced because my mom does love us. Like she just doesn't have the mental capacity to take care of us and to be a good parent to us. But my mom loves us. And so for her then to come and be like, I want to bless the foster care system, even though it's hurt me. I was just like, okay, God, like, you're so good. <laughs> Even for you to be able to distinguish between like, she loves us, but she doesn't have the capacity to love us or to take care of us. Um, that just sounds like a lot of work that you've done on yourself. And it sounds like a lot of forgiveness and a lot of healing. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that, about yourself and the kind of work that you've had to do to, you know, work on self-worth and you talked about that earlier? Yeah. So, you know, when I was removed from that home where the abuse was, when me and my sister were separated, I had to move into a group home. And from like the surface, I was like, I do not belong here. Like this is bull crap that I'm here. I was really upset. But then they put me in counseling. You know, it was mandatory. I think we had to go to counseling like every other day, um, all of us. And there was like a counselor on campus where we lived. And throughout that time, that's when I realized like, okay, there is something, you know, there is something that is in me that is like super broken and super hurt um, because of the, the things that my mom had spoken over me that were very harmful because of the abuse. And one time I was in a group session and there was a girl and she was talking about, you know, just what she had endured in the foster care system and through like ruptured adoptions. And again, that's when I think I realized like hurt people hurt, hurt people. And I looked at my mom and I was like, oh, she's like a really hurt person. And so then I started to try and understand what her growing up was like. And as I understood more about her young adult life, her teenage years and all the stuff that she had went through, it allowed me to have a lot more empathy and understanding for my mom. I think, you know, in most cases, if we know a person's story, we understand like why they do the things they do and we can give them grace. We can give them forgiveness And so that's really where it started. And then I realized that, you know, counseling was pretty good for me. Thankfully, the, I don't know if I would have stayed in it at a young age. I don't know if I was wise enough to do that at such a young age, but it was mandated by the judge that I continue counseling again because of the abuse that I had been through. And, um, it was just good. It was so good for me. I was in counseling until I was 18. And then I went to college and they had free counseling services. Um, where I went to college and I was like, well, I might as well just like keep going. And, you know, that was really good for me. And then I was like, and then counseling got cool all of a sudden, like, as in, like when I got out of college, counseling is cool. And so I was like, I'm just going to keep doing it. But you know what? I think the most healing thing like has really been community being around people who remind me of who I am, what I'm called to having purpose, like having purpose is so healing because I think when I was in the system, I really didn't know, like, I did not know if I had a purpose. I, there were times where I was like actually hopeless. And I was like, what is the point of this foster care system? What is the point of all this pain and knowing and understanding now that like God is using it for good, that my story is like actually helping people. Like, and I, so sometimes it feels so prideful to say that, but you know, just the amount of like messages I get in a day that say, you know, we adopted this kid because we heard your story or we got involved in foster care because we heard your story. Um, you know, it's like, okay, God, like, even though sometimes telling the story is hard and things like that, it's like those messages, like those 100 words, word messages make it worth it. And I don't know if it's the work that I have done that has healed me, but the, the more I tell my story, I realize like this story has so much to do with a lot of other people who stepped in, who spoke words of life over me, who were there for me, 
like this story is about other people, you know, who helped me heal. And so I don't know. I think if I had to give like people any advice um, in like healing, counseling is cool. Like I'm still in therapy, always will be. But I think what's even cooler is a community that will call you out when you need to be called out and that'll raise you up when you need to be raised up. So much, so much good stuff there. No, because I I feel the same way. So at the end of the day, right, you call it prideful. I'm like, no, that's your purpose. You're living your purpose. That's why it feels good to do that with your story, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're here to make an impact on other people. And if you can do that and we always ask ourselves, why me? Right. Like, why did I go through this? Why did I have to go through this? And I, I go back to that. Like you're going through it so you can alleviate other people's pain. Right. So you understand what that's like. And now you're helping other people, including your sister. So, you know, thank you for what you're doing. Well, besides your book, you've been able to accomplish so much. You know, you became a track champion, Miss Universe. Kidding me. And you're a part of three percent of foster kids that graduate college. What are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of being a wife and a mom. And I know that's like so silly, but I no, what? Coming... Yes, amazing. <laughs> I mean, like there's like Mrs. Universe, you know, and there's like a best-selling book. Like I think, you know, in the world, those are really like they are really awesome things. When I, I found out that my book was like number one in all three of its Amazon categories, I like screamed. Like on my whole me and my whole family, we were like screaming. And so those things that and like uh, when it comes to being a mom, like it, it's not like those exciting big moments where you're like screaming and like super happy. Like it doesn't, it's not like that. But I think when you, I came from such a broken home and I always feared, like, I'm not going to be a good mom. Like I'm not going to be a good wife. My family is like, if I have a family, it's like destined to fail because there's all these things in me that are programmed. You know, there's so much fear. And, but then like to go, you know, day in and day out and watch my kids like flourish and not just because it's not just because of me and Jacob, my husband, it's like, because it's because of the grace of God, but to just continue, you know, to get to mother them and be a wife and build a home, like the home that I always wanted. There's just a lot of joy in that. Like, I think, you know, that you've probably heard that quote of like, be the person you needed when you were a kid. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm building the home that I needed when I was a kid. Yeah. I think that that's like my favorite thing. That feels like my biggest accomplishment. Okay. The fact that only such a small percentage of foster kids even graduate college and that many kids of the foster children also end up in the system is so heartbreaking and shows what effect the foster care really has. Were you scared of becoming a mom yourself? Okay, well, you just answered that question. Um, But what was it that helped you as you were becoming a mom? Who helped you along the way to understand? Because I do know a lot of people who are scared of inflicting the same pains of what they've seen along the way. Yeah, so I, I talked about that mentor who took us in during Christmas. So her name is Tanya. And she is like, she's still my mentor. She's like my mother figure. She's one of my best friends to this day. She lives like a quarter of a mile away from us. We go to her house like every night and, you know, just watching her 
I've got to watch her. So now her kids are teenagers, but I started watching her be a mom when her kids were like two. And so to be able to watch her be a mom, I think has been, you know, she's taught me a lot just in doing what she does. And then of course, living with a bunch of different foster families also taught me, you know, there were good moms. There were not so good moms. And that taught me a lot of like, okay, I don't, that's the kind of mom I don't want to be. That's the kind of mom I do want to be. And that's another piece of advice that, you know, I'd give to people who are scared of motherhood, like just go watch other moms, just go be with other moms and decide like what kind of mother you want to be and what you have to do to be that kind of mother, because that's what has made me so much less fearful um, is just surrounding myself with good moms and just trying to absorb, you know, what they do and how they love their kids. Okay. So I, I really have to hear because you're a mom of three, your oldest son is adopted. How does it feel to be able to give him the family, give him a family after you were a foster child? You know, I'm like always thinking, I just like, I feel like every part of my life is redeemed. Like every part of my life, God has just allowed to bring full circle. And I'm like 26 and it just feels like there's no missing pieces. And I'm just like, God, you are so good. And so I think when I look at that, you know, like I was an adopt, I was adopted as an adult. We adopted him as an adult. And so I think he and our relationship is just a constant reminder to me that like, even when I guess even there are moments where it's like, oh, like there is a missing piece or like you do feel some kind of heartbreak in a different family relationship. It's like, okay, God, like you have brought everything full circle. You have made everything good. And so just holding onto that hope, like when there are broken pieces or when there is something missing that like, it's going to be brought full circle. I think that my son is just, our oldest son is a constant reminder of that. And, you know, people are always like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. Like he's like the best kid ever. And he blesses us. And the reminder of what his life means to us is like, you know, he makes us good. He makes us amazing. He's such a blessing. I also understand that people have fears of adopting older kids. And so along the way, and maybe, you know, what, advice would you give for people about discernment or about the way that you're able to, you know, fight through those fears in your mind as you're an older kid? Yeah. You know, I always say the number one thing we need as foster parents, um, but really as disciples of Christ, you know, the number one thing we need is love. We need compassion to share with people. And then the second thing we need is discernment because there are a lot of decisions to be made as a disciple of Christ. Um, and so I think I, I never tell, like, I don't, I don't tell people like you have to adopt older kids, but I do think that, you know, there are more people that need to consider it than they, than think they do. And, um, I think that again, that's done in community surrounded by people who are willing to call you out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, something that I feel like God has been ministering to me lately is that Jesus wasn't scared to love anybody. Like he wasn't scared to reach anybody. If you look at the woman at the well, you know, she was a Samaritan. He was a Jew. He was not supposed to go up to her. 
but he did anyway. And if you look at like lepers, you know, people are always like, don't touch the lepers, but Jesus laid his hands on them to heal him. And so I think we need to, you know, think about is our fear rational and reasonable in the way that, you know, we want to keep our children safe, but also in the same way, um, is, is our fear keeping us from reaching those who Jesus would have healed? I always think it's, I think that you can, with love, you can, you can inspire other people to love. You talked about that in terms of, you know, Christianity, how you just felt this love from people. And it was like, man, what is this? And you, they inspired you to come into, into the faith. Tell me about your faith. Tell me how it's gotten you through um, tough times. Tell me how you, what you see in, in passages that you're, maybe your favorite passages or story. Yeah. yeah, my faith is everything. Like, it's everything to me. I I think it's the only thing that's gotten me through because it's the only thing that I can hold on to when, like, these other things, you know, fall apart, you know, because, like, things with our adopted son, like they are not always perfect. He has trauma. He has things, you know? And so to like, hold on, you know, to God, you've never failed me and you're not going to holding on to these promises and like my biological children. And, you know, people are, people always tell us like, is it really safe to have these older kids in your home? You know, is it really safe? And it's like, God, like, I'm putting all the like necessary like precautionaries in place. And for the rest, like you have never failed me and you never will. And I'm just going to trust in you. And so I think just holding on to that always. And even as an adult, things come back from the foster care system. You know, those things in your head where those words, they just like replay. And, you know, it, makes me feel like I have imposter syndrome or it makes me feel like I'm unwanted. And there, there are these sayings I always go back to. And it's even if no one wants me in their home, God has built a kingdom for me and he welcomes me into it. And even if no one, you know, loves me or wants to have me as their own, God has called me a beloved daughter. And it's God's like opinion, you know, God's opinion is above every other opinion. Mm -hmm. And so going back to those like two things, whenever I'm just like down and out has really, really, I guess, grounded me and helped me remember who I am and what I'm called to. Amazing. Okay. You know, we're not going to have a whole show about this without you telling us about Miss Universe, right? I don't, uh, that's uh, something that we have to, I have to hear about this. How did this come to be? What was it like? What was it like when you won? Just tell me the whole thing. Okay. So, so I live, I was living in Minnesota, small town. And someone was like, we want a pageant girl to walk in our 4th of July parade. Um, and they knew that I had experience in public speaking and they said I was pretty. And so they were like, would this be something you would consider? And I was like, well, I think to do that, you would actually have to do a pageant. And like, I don't know how to do that. And pageantry is like not my thing. And honestly, on the outside, it like looked really superficial. And I was like, you know, there's a lot of money that's poured into this industry that could be used to actually like serve kids. And so I was like, no, I'd like, I don't do, I wouldn't do that. 
um, just being like pompous, you know, and prideful and not even looking into it. And then, you know, I'm like laying with my husband, like, and you know, like your late night thoughts, you're like, Hmm, you know, like pageantry would actually be kind of fun dressing up all the time. Like, and like doing my makeup, like that sounds kind of fun. And then we got a foster sibling group of three. And so with our biological babies and um, the foster babies, we had five, three and under. And I was like living in sweats and like the messy mom bun, like every day. And I was just like, it was just hard. And so I was like, I'm going to do this pageant thing. Like I'm going to do something that's like kind of like the opposite of what I'm doing. And then as I learned more about pageantry, I learned that you can have a platform, like you get to raise awareness and talk about things. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about foster care and Jesus. Like I'm going to tell people about the love of God, that they're loved by God. And I'm going to tell people like, I'm going to make people aware of foster care and the stigmas and the stereotypes that revolve youth. And I want to show them that like, we're actually like, we're not bad kids. We're not bad people. And I wanted to show foster youth that too. And so that was the kind of the platform that I ran with. And then I, I hired a coach because I'm very, I'm very competitive. Um, I'm, if I go into anything, like I'm going to go all out. Yeah. So I hired a, co- I hired like the best coach in Minnesota And she was very hard on me. Like the first walking we ever did, she was like, Tori, that is hideous. Like your walk, you look like a linebacker. And I was like, (laughs) I'm like like 5'3 and 110 pounds. And she said, I look like a linebacker. I was like, okay. (laughs) What did you have to change in your walk? What's, what do you have to, how do you have to walk? You have to like, you have to like put your shoulders very back. Yep. Like that. Very good. And what else did I have to do? It was kind of like, okay, so. When you walk, like you have to walk in a straight line. So one foot, like directly in front of the other. So it's not like this, you know, it's like, it's like one foot in front of the other and you're in heels, which is like, I'm, I am an athlete. I work out every day. Like I do not wear heels. I don't have a reason to wear heels. I mean, I do now because now I kind of have to like, keep the, keep the persona of Mrs. Universe up, but I didn't then. And, um, she was a great coach. She's super hard on me, but that's, I think that's what a good coach is super hard on you. And so, um, and I was used to that from being an athlete and very thankful for it. And so when I went to the pageant, she told me, she was like, you know, you have a chance to win this, um, or be top three. And she said, you're either going to be really close or you're going to win. And I was like, okay, to be really close to anything, like, uh, you know, that always sucks. Like whenever you're like second place and you're like, it, when I'm, when I was running track, you know, you're like second place and it was like by 0.002 seconds, you know, you just didn't like lean at the line, like that sucks. And so it's like, I can't be close. Like I, that'll gut me. And so I just, you know, I did everything she said, um, with, there were things that she said in terms of like my message where she was like, I don't know about that with the God stuff. She was like, people could be really turned away from that. And I was like, I cannot do this and not speak to who he is. Mm -hmm. So um, I tried my best to stay true to that. And I guess it worked. (laughs) And when I won, I, I was like very overwhelmed. I was very happy, um, very humbled. Like I cried. 
but I wouldn't say I was like not shocked. I was not like blown away because she did tell me the whole time. Like, I think you have the potential to win this. And I really did go in. Like, I can't get second. Like I have to win. Like I either don't even want to be here or like I have to win. (laughs) So you hear your name and you're like, Oh, I already know. All right. No, no, I'm going home now. (laughs) No, there was honestly, so there were two women and they were, um, second and third, like one of them had got top three in Miss USA. Another one was like top five in Miss America. And they had been doing pageants since they were like little. And so I really like when we were at the top three, I really like, I did not, I I had no idea because these women were, they were, they competed just as amazing, but they say in pageantry that you win a pageant and interview. And I did feel very confident in my interview um, in telling my story and what God had done in my life. And I did feel like the judges, they like have like this, these poker faces, like they do not want to like give anything, but I could tell, like they were giving me a little bit. And I was like, I think that, I think that that went well. And so, um, from my interview, I was like, if, if pageantry is really one an interview, I think I did. Okay. Like, I think I might win this, but then it was all the stage stuff again, like the walking and the gown, like my gown was too big for me. Um, because I borrowed a gown from someone else and I couldn't afford a real gown. Um, and like my walk, like it wasn't perfect. And so there were the onstage things that they had been, they had done their whole life that I was like, I don't know. That was where I was like, I don't know. Okay. So I have a similar story to yours where I started playing ball late and it was something that I didn't understand at all. And I came from Nigeria. I never played ball in my life, but I had an uncle who spoke faith into me. And he said, you never know. No, maybe you can. I I didn't really, I didn't really have faith because I didn't know how to play. When you're getting cut from your high school team and all these things are happening and you're not playing, you don't really have a lot of faith in those moments. You just kind of just go along with it. But in those moments of where I almost quit, I had this person speaking life into me. I had other people as well, coaches. And I will say, when you get there, there is a lesson that I learned personally, because I don't just think that I don't just look at my life as a passing thing. I think the lesson that I learned is that anything is possible Mm. with your story. It doesn't really matter what your past was. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It really matters what you say about you, because when they Mm -hmm. speak life into you, that's you then rewiring your brain. Oh, I can do this. But if you yeah. spoke life into yourself in the first place, then you, you never know what you can accomplish. And so mm. that's what I learned from that thing for me. What did you learn? What did mm. being a, a Mrs. Universe teach you? What did being Mrs. Universe teach me? You know, I think that it taught me, I think it kind of emphasized like something that again, I've been thinking about a lot and that I was thinking about before Mrs. Universe, but I feel like it really emphasized it there was that I want to be the same person on a screen um, that I am like when there's no one in the room. Like I want to have, when, when you have this title, like I have this title of Mrs. Universe and people were like, wow, like this they kind of were like it, eleve- it like the, it made people elevate me but really I was like but guys I'm the same person like I've been 
doing this foster care advocacy. I've been public speaking. I've been doing these things before Mrs. Universe, but Mrs. Universe made people take me more seriously. And so I guess it taught me like, yes, these are, there are these accolades, um, but you know, really I want people to see me for my character and for that to be done, I have to continue to live out um, in a consistent way, like live out my message, like in a consistent way, like not just preach it, but live it. And also like live up to the titles that God has blessed me with so that people are not just influenced by a title, but people are influenced by character. And they say, you know, I don't want people to say, oh, I want to be Mrs. Universe. Cause really like a title doesn't mean anything if there's not character behind it. I want people to look at me and say, I want to be kind. Like I want to be compassionate. I want to care for people. And so I think it just emphasized that like all the more. That's so beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. I love that. Um, tell me about the book and tell me, you know, um, you wrote a book and it's amazing. Uh, fostered. I can't wait to order it now. Why did you write this book and what do you hope that we get from it? Yeah. You know, when I wrote the book, when I started, so I started writing this book like four years ago and I wrote it because I wanted to write a book that would have helped me heal. Like when I was in foster care, I wanted to write it for the youth who were coming after me in the system. And then I started sharing on social media, kind of like parts that I would share in the book and just more about my story and my life. And I realized that I was educating like social workers and foster parents and people who wanted to mentor kids who come from hard places and people who were considering foster care in the church. Like it kind of expanded. Like I literally was just like, if this book gets into like three hands of kids in foster care, like I'm going to feel really good. <laughs> and then it like expanded into like people who just want to serve kids from hard places. I mean, I'm still like always trying to wrap my head around it. So the book really, it started off like, I want to write this for like little me, but now it's like, I guess it's for everybody. And I think what I want to communicate in the book is that you know, no matter what has been done to you and no matter what you've done, like you have a purpose, there is a plan for your life and it is good and you are made good. Um, and that there's just like, there's hope, you know, I think when kids are in the foster care system and what I've learned more now, um, educating foster parents and caseworkers is there's a lot of like, even the adults in these kids' lives, like they just lose hope so quickly for these kids. And the way we see kids is how they see themselves. And so I want to really encourage people to do what my track coach did. You know, there were people who were like, wash your hands on this girl. She has trouble. But he was like, I'm going to see her differently. I'm like, I'm going to see her for who she truly is and the potential that she has. And so I want to encourage like just people to take the stereo, like strip the stereotypes off of foster youth, but also just off of people because it really does limit their potential. And when we strip those stereotypes off of marginalized communities, foster youth, 
immigrants, like whoever, wherever, whatever person you want to place in that blank, I think that it's going to result in us having a stronger, a stronger society and a better culture. I love it. Okay. I have taken your, your time up way too long now. I always end every show with one question. I love this question so much, and this is for you. And it's, um, it's about you talking to your younger self. Hmm. You say you wrote that book for your younger self. And if you could talk to the girl who felt like she should be quiet when she told on somebody and was called a liar, or you could talk to the person who was going to 10 different homes um, in 10 years or just your younger self, if you could speak to her, what would you do? No, I think I'd tell her that all the adults that say being an adult is going to be worse. Um, I would tell her that it is going to get a lot better because there were just so many times when I was in the system that I was hopeless, that I didn't want to keep living. And, um, I think if I just would have heard, you know, things are going to get better. I think that would have made my time a little bit easier. And I think I would tell her um, the same thing that I tell myself now is to do the next thing in love. And, um, you know, just my biggest regrets in being a young person is being mean to people because of my own hurt, hurting people because of my own hurt, letting that, you know, kind of continue and so I, I wish that I would have understood from a young age what it meant to live and act um, in love. Live and do the next thing in love. Thank you so much, Tori. This was incredible. This is way worth it for me to come out here sick. I was like, yo, I'm not missing this interview. And I really appreciate you. By the way, you got to tell everybody where to find you. Okay. Yeah. So my Instagram handle is Tori Hope Peterson. I'm on TikTok at Tori Hope Peterson. Um, my everything is the same, Tori Hope Peterson. Um, and Peterson is S-E-N, not S-O-N. Tori Hope Peterson. Man, this was this was more than what I I even thought. So thank you so, so, so much. I really appreciate yeah. this is amazing. Thank, thank you so much. It was so cool to meet you and be on here today. <laughs> so thank you. Okay, before you go, I got to read a beast mail. And this beast mail is what people send to me, whether it's DMs or podcast ratings and the comments that people put on there. I just read them anonymously because I think it's important for us to foster this community that we're building here. So today's beast mail is a message that I got on Instagram DMs that goes like this. Hey, Fez, it was nice to meet a fellow tall person yesterday. I'm glad we could connect. Thanks for laughing and sharing my story. I'm glad to learn that you actually have a fair bit of basketball experience. Thanks for being nonchalant about it. I appreciate your humble nature and love to see what you're doing with the page here. These stories you share are so powerful. Thinking on the best bit of coaching advice that I've ever gotten. It is, you can't pour from an empty cup. Honor your health and your support system above all else, because those are the real two pillars that you stand on. It's easy to lose your health and family life to the game unless you keep your self-care and life balance in check. I've learned the hard way a time or two. Safe travels to you along the way and best of luck in your coaching endeavors. 
you're already doing a great job. Thank you so much to my anonymous new friend. I really appreciate the support. And wow, I just love, I love this page. I love everything about it. I love that people give advice and share their life stories through this page. So thank you. Keep supporting us. Please keep rating and sharing this podcast. I think more people need to hear the inspiring message. Thank you again. Have a blessed day. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. Don't forget to share it with someone who you think will appreciate the message. And also rate on whatever platform you're listening on. Please rate and like and share and comment so other people can enjoy the message as well. Thank you for listening and until next time.